1 Corinthians 11, we'll begin at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Well, if you were here last week, we finished the book of Philippians. We've been there for some time, and um, we looked at the last piece of, of the book that Paul wrote to that church there in Philippi. He talks to them, he thanks them for their generosity, and in so doing, he teaches some about generosity, and we, we spent time there. They shared with him, and then he says that he is most excited about that generosity because of the blessing it would be to them, that is to the Philippians. It added blessing, it added credit, it increased their lives or their account. We looked at this phrase, blessing and wise generosity, and that's for us. Giving or generosity should be a constant in our lives. The income we have, the economy around us, that may move and fluctuate, but giving for us as believers should be a constant. After all, has it not been given to us by God? Wise generosity. We should study the scripture and know, seek the Lord, be convicted about how to give, where to give, and there, there will be diversity amongst ourselves. When we give, by the way, we invest. It's not just a matter of handing a check over or paying that bill, but we invest in something not only do we support it and believe in it, but we become part of it. We are engaging in a literal way in God's work. And in so doing, there's a blessing. We, we looked at that. Paul says that the profit to the Philippians' account would increase. They would be added to because of what they gave and, and the same is for us. If we give wisely, if we are wisely generous, then we open our life to God's blessing. The scripture there talks about God meeting our needs. We, we know God will materially provide to begin with. He will provide for our material needs. And second, God will bless spiritually. He will change our life. He will grow us. He will sanctify us as we open our life to his blessing by giving. That brought an end to Philippians. I told you I, I planned to go to Ruth, and yet before we go to Ruth this morning, I want to spend our time looking at the ordinances of the Christian church. We have two ordinances that we follow, baptism and communion. And I want to discuss some about why we have two, why we, why we do them at all. Many of this is, is reminder for you, 
but that's okay. It was a good reminder for me too. Let's ask the Lord to bless us as we look at these ordinances that he has given us. Father, thank you for this time to be together. It's encouraging to be in the room here as believers to worship. We want to worship as we look at your word, what it says to us about these two ordinances that we believe you left behind. Jesus, you gave them to us and the churches throughout history and the churches yet to come to practice for a purpose. Please let us understand them, be comfortable there, and be passionate about them. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we call them ordinances. An ordinance means something along the lines of an authoritative decree or an outward act or or right that Christ prescribed for his followers. And I think we can think about an ordinance as being something that should be part of the order of Christianity. Now, an ordinance, the word ordinance better defines what we're looking at in these two things than does the word sacrament. At least that's my understanding. You You may have heard of that word sacrament. It literally means something set apart as sacred. The Roman Catholics would use that. Some Protestants would also use that even in describing these two ordinances. Um, But a sacrament, the word sacrament carries the idea of affecting or causing a change. That is, it produces grace in the person that participates in the sacrament. And generally that is something we reject. So we use this word ordinances. We don't think that the ordinance baptism and communion, we don't think they have some kind of innate power or magic, but instead we practice them according to scriptural guidance and obedience, and in so doing we gain the blessing thereof. And we'll look at, as we break them down individually, we'll look at why we practice them um, a little deeper. Some of the early reformers 500 years ago when they broke away from the Catholic Church in a big way They called the ordinances for us visible words of the gospel. Visible words of the gospel. That was the term that some of them used. If you think about these two ordinances, they're special. They're unique in practice. We have a lot of things in the scripture, don't we? Guidance and teaching about our life, about how to treat one another, about how to worship God, how to love, what's in our heart etc. But these two are in a category of their own. They're unique. So I want to take a little time and explore each one, and hopefully we can grasp a little bit better as to why they're things that we do and what comes of them when we do them. As we look at this, think about with me the knights of the Middle Ages. How many of you have ever wanted to be a knight? It's got to be more than that. There we go. There's one. I mean, some of you women have wanted to be knights, and you you really couldn't have been, even if you lived back in the Middle Ages. And I know some of you boys have wanted to be knights. The knights lasted actually quite a bit, quite a period of time um, in the medieval times in Europe, about from 500 to 1500. And so Things changed during those times, but they were around during that thousand-year period. 
Knights were generally seen as elite warriors, maybe you could say. They're so, you, you, you associate knighthood with bravery, with chivalry, upright conduct and character. And they were skilled and formidable warriors, usually on horseback. Now, much of the time during, during these years, these centuries, you really didn't have to have special privileges or, last na- or even a, a, the right last name to become a knight, but you did have to dedicate yourself. There was work involved, there was commitment involved, there was education involved, and years of process to get there. As a young man, you had to work your way through years of learning, starting as a page, moving to a squire, and eventually, if you proved yourself, both by character and battle skills, and you weren't injured or killed along the way, you could be knighted. Knights offered protection for nobles, landowners, for lords. They fought battles, and ultimately they served the king of the land in protecting his country. Now, if you made it as far as to be knighted, you were a knight, forever a knight. That was your identity. I'd like to think about our identity. We're Christians. I'm speaking to Christians. If you're not a Christian, you can be. Our identity is in Christ. We are, if you want to think about it, a knight. Now, as a knight, and we're going to talk about baptism first, think about this. As a knight... Certain things were an outward expression. That is, they symbolized your knighthood. One of those was what you wore. Now, if you were not in battle or not in practice or showing off, you may not have been able to tell who the knights were, but even then they dressed as noblemen and as fashionably as as was the whatever was fashionable for the time. But when you put on your armor... What did knights wear in battle? What did they wear when they were practicing and in parades? Well, let's, let's look at that for a minute. Early knights in the early days wore heavy leather and, and chain mail, something like on the right here, for protection. And then in later days, they were known for their plate armor, a helmet. You might be familiar with that full suit of armor that you've seen. It looks like the person standing there, but there's nothing inside. Sometimes even their horse would wear body armor. They would, they would pick up a weapon. They were known for being capable with a lance, with a mace, sometimes a longbow and a shield, and of course, their favorite sword. Now, a knight's horse was also of high import. Not just any horse, but the horse that was specially trained, that they had relationship with and that they knew how to ride. All of these things, when you put your armor on, when you mounted your horse and you grabbed your weapons, you were in battle dress, weren't you? Sometimes that meant you paraded yourself before the king or or the people of the city. You looked the part. Would it have been hard to recognize a knight? What if one rode across the parking lot? I think we would recognize them. So keep that in mind. That was the outward expression of the night. Well, let's think about baptism as we come to the ordinances. Bridgeport actually has a statement. I'll read it quickly. Listen to this. 
the statement on baptism. It says we believe that baptism is a scriptural ordinance to be administered by a New Testament church. That's us. By immersion for believers only as an outward expression of belief in Christ. So that's our statement. Now, why do we believe that? Why do we practice baptism? The first thing is, is that we have scriptural underpinnings for baptism. Turn, turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 28. This is Jesus at the end of his earth, earthly ministry, and he's giving final instructions to his disciples. There's 11 of them right before he goes up, right before he ascends at the end of his life. And let's read that, Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20. If you've got it there, you can follow along. My, my version may be different, I apologize, but you'll get the, the basics of, of the command from Jesus at this time. It says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. To the end of the age. So that goes beyond just those 11 that were listening to him, as I understand it. Jesus says, make disciples, and then he says, baptizing them. Now, this is not a spiritual baptism that we administer. We'll touch on that in a minute. Only God can do that. But Jesus laid out this practice of water baptism for his church. A second underpinning we have in Scripture are the examples in the early church. There's, there's many of them. Here's a few. Um, actually, before we get to those examples, we should note that the practice of baptism goes farther back than Christianity. It was known as something by immersion, something that was done in order to associate yourself with a certain religion or a certain group of people. Remember John the Baptist. He comes along at some point. He even has... Baptist attached to his name, that's because he was baptizing in the baptism of repentance. If you remember that, he, he preached, repent and be baptized. The baptism, the water baptism, in John's case, was a sign of internal repentance. It was that external sign of what they had done in their heart. Jesus himself, by the way, and here's our first example, was baptized by John. Do you remember that? Jesus didn't need to, be, to repent, but he stood as the first example. Now, we also follow the examples then, as I said, and the practices of the apostles in the early church. After Pentecost, you see a lot of baptism going, baptisms happening. For instance, Peter, in Acts chapter 2, after he preaches he calls them to repent. And by the way, when he says repent, he means change their mind about who Jesus was. This crowd had just crucified Jesus. They had just cried out, crucify him. He's a criminal. Peter says, change your mind about that. He's not a criminal. He's the Messiah. In other words, believe in him as Messiah. After these people, 3,000 believed, they were baptized. We also have the example of Philip, one of them. There's, there's a couple in Acts chapter 8 
when many heard Philip proclaiming the gospel, they what? Believed and then were baptized. One more is Paul out of Acts chapter 16. This, by the way, is in Philippi. We just tried to get away from Philippi, but um, one of the first converts of the church there in Philippi that later Paul wrote Philippians 2 was a jailer and his family. Do you remember what he said? How, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then what happened? He was baptized by Paul, assumedly, or somebody there. So we, as the church of God, just like these, we need baptism after belief in obedience to Scripture. Okay, so that's the first reason. Now, let's talk a little bit about why, or excuse me, how we baptize. What is the mode of baptism? This is disagreed upon, isn't it? Some of you have been sprinkled in the past or some other thing. Um, that's, we, uh, if you heard what I said in the statement, we believe immersion is the way to go. Um, and, and there's reasons for that. It's not an arbitrary or simplistic thing. There's theological reasons behind all that. We're not going to get into that today. But there was a Presbyterian and a Baptist who were discussing baptism at one time. And after a beautiful dissertation on the subject by the Baptist... The Presbyterian asked if the Baptist considered a person baptized if he was immersed in water up to his chin. No, said the Baptist. Is he considered baptized if he is immersed up, immersed up to his nose? Asked the Presbyterian. Again, the Baptist's answer was no. Well, if you immerse him up to his eyebrows, do you consider him baptized? Asked the Presbyterian. You don't seem to understand, said the Baptist. He must be immersed completely in water until his head is covered. Well, that's what I've been trying to tell you all along, said the Presbyterian. It's only a little sprinkling on top of the head that counts. So that's really not what's behind it. But sprinkling and pouring or other methods are practiced. But we, we prefer biblically immersion. The first reason for that is because the word itself, baptism, is a transliteration. That means it sounds very similar to the Greek word. And the word means simply to dip or immerse. It's actually even been used to mean to sink. That's what our word baptism means. In the New Testament, the Greek words for pouring or sprinkling are never used in conjunction with baptism. So immersion seems to fit that well. It also fits the examples in the Bible we have. For example, Philip, at another occasion, baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember that? He believed. He said, there's water. Let's be baptized. And that Philip took him down into the water and then back up out of the water. So though immersion, I should, the, the, a bit of a caveat, I guess. Immersion is proper. It is correct. There may be extreme cases where immersion is difficult or even impossible. I don't think it's wrong. I don't think it's irreverent to substitute the use of pouring in some of those cases. We see in Scripture, we've, we've looked at many of them already here, that converts are first, they first believe, they first repent, they're first saved, and then they're baptized. So baptism is for believers. 
Now, there's sometimes confusion on this subject. For example, one time a man stumbled across a baptismal service on, on a Sunday afternoon down by the river. The minister asked the man, Mister, are you ready to find Jesus? The man says, Yes, I am. The minister then immerses the man under the water and pulls him right back up. The preacher asked, Have you found Jesus? The man says, No, I didn't. The preacher then dunks him under for quite a bit longer this time and brings him up and says, Now, brother, have you found Jesus? The man replied, No, I did not. Well, the preacher, in disgust, holds the man under for much longer this on the third time, brings him out of the water and says in a kind of harsh tone, Have you found Jesus yet? The man wipes his eyes and says to the preacher, uh, Are you sure this is where he fell in? Well, baptism is not to find Jesus. Baptism is for believers. Why for believers? Well, it's simply because baptism does not save a person. Baptism, that act of immersion, it exhibits what has happened in your heart. God saved you. In short, and you know this, God, we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. Remember the jailer? He believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was saved. At the moment of salvation, we're justified. We're placed in right relationship with God. We're forgiven. We're adopted into his family. There's, there's other pictures biblically that we can use. I think it's at this moment that we're baptized by the Holy Spirit. In, we're, we're placed by the Holy Spirit into Christ. We are immersed into God's family. That's only something the Holy Spirit can do. By the way, there is, as you read Scripture, keep in mind there's both spirit and water baptism that's talked about. Sometimes they're a little hard to distinguish. Keep it in mind. As you go out dressed for battle, your armor is on, your weapon is on your side, you're on your horse. You look the part, don't you? But did your dress, did your armor and your sword and your horse, did they make you a knight? Knighthood is based upon your character, upon your bravery, your skill, your training. The outward appearance is not who you are, but it's a sign, it's a symbol of what is within what has happened you were already a knight well it's like this baptism is for those who have already found Jesus well what does it do what what is it what is baptism about I want to just think of three words together when we think about baptism and what it is three words First, it's a symbol. Second, it's a public testimony. And third, it's a celebration. We'll look at those, those each here right at this time. Baptism is symbolic. It's a symbol of who you are as a Christian. Baptism, like, I, like we just said, it represents what has taken place inwardly by the power of God. Repentance has taken place you have union with Christ now. God has extended saving grace to you. 
It's as if you have gone under the water, uncleansed or in the flesh, and then symbolically you've come out of the water. It represents the new creation. That's what the scripture calls it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Old things have passed away and look, new things have come. And then that water baptism is symbolic of what has happened. Remember your knighthood. It's not based upon your character. It's not based upon your skill in battle. Your knighthood, I'm sorry, is based upon your character and your skill in battle and your training. You have become a knight. You've made it. But when you put your armor on, when you grab your weapon and you sit atop your horse, you dress the part, it's a symbol of who you are as a knight. It's an outward expression of the inward reality. Baptism is a symbol. Baptism is also a public testimony, or you could say a confession. Think about it. You put your armor on for the first time, and you go out in public. As a knight, you confess in a way, don't you? You give testimony to your decision to become a knight, to give your life to the lifestyle of knighthood. That is who you are. That's what you've chosen at this point. Baptism is a public act. We proclaim with our words and our actions and our, that our decision is for Jesus. I think it's appropriate that the church family gather, they witness and they celebrate this confession, this public testimony of the one being baptized. It is sometimes intimidating to publicly confess and we encourage those who are going to be baptized to speak a few words about their testimony. That can be difficult, but we should dress the part. We should look the part. We should take courage and parade ourselves as a knight because that is who we are. The third thing I think that we can look at for baptism is it's a celebration. And that means a couple of things. For one, We enter into celebration together for the life of our brother and sister, the life in Christ that God has given them. They publicly confess their faith and their baptism symbolizes what God has done. And then we celebrate. We come alongside. We encourage. We commit. Those are are some of the other things. It's really a beautiful thing. When you as a new knight put your armor on for the first time, you ride out with the brotherhood of knights. It symbolizes, it testifies, but it's also a celebration of unity. You are part of that brotherhood. You have each other's back, don't you? You stand alongside each other. You celebrate as a unit. So I think these things can be helpful as we think about baptism, the first ordinance of the church. Let's talk about communion The second ordinance, sometimes you might have heard it called the Lord's Supper. That's fine too, or the the Last Supper. It would be the Lord's Supper would be appropriate. Um, We also at Bridgeport have a statement concerning communion. It says simply, we believe that the Lord's Supper is a scriptural ordinance of the church to be partaken of by obedient born-again believers. Again, think about your knighthood as a knight. It was important to be constantly engaged in training and in practice. 
for the knight to be ready and able for battle, he had to know his art. He had to be physically capable of his art. So it was a regular, very regular part of life for the knight to engage in training. If you're a knight, you might have constant training and practice in some of these areas. The use of various weapons, climbing, swimming, running, riding your horse, wrestling, and even mock fighting in tournaments. All of these, by the way, could be something you would do in full armor, which I read in some places could be up to 100 pounds worth of armor. Well, you've heard about the joust. This is where two knights practice their fighting by running at each other in a designated area in hopes of jousting the other hard enough to knock him off his horse while not injuring him too badly. There was also something called the melee, basically a mock battle between two groups of mounted knights trying to break through each other's line and rout the other group. Both of these were great entertainment, by the way. I think we still do something of the sort. We call it football, but put a little more armor on the head. But In all, all of these things were designed to keep that knight in shape, keep him fit, and to further define who he was at his core. I want to suggest that our, our regular partaking in communion is something like regular training, regular practice, Now, we may know how to joust. We may know the truth and the particulars of a sword fight. But we need to engage. We need to practice. We need to regularly remember. Bringing it to mind at regular intervals in order to be truly trained. Actually, there's a lot of points of Christian life you could throw in there, right? But just especially thinking about this ordinance of communion now why let's talk about communion why do we do communion the first reason just like baptism is the scriptural underpinnings that we have for the ordinance you can turn with me to luke chapter 22 and we'll start there with the scriptural underpinnings the scriptural guidance for communion and in luke 22 you find jesus at the Last Supper with his disciples. It's called the Last Supper because it's the last meal they shared together before Jesus was crucified. So look at that passage with me. Um, I don't have the exact verses of what I'm going to read. Give me just a second. It's Luke, Luke 22. I'm going to start in 14, I think. Let's just read a few verses together. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So there he's talking about the Passover meal. And then in a second, he's going to get to what we call communion. Then he took a cup. And after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Verse 19, and he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
Verse 20, in the same way, he also took the cup and after supper said, the cup is the new covenant established by my blood. It is shed for you. We'll stop there. This was the first communion. So like I said, Jesus, right before his betrayal, his trial, his crucifixion, all of that, he employed these common elements. They had them right there on the table, a loaf of bread, some wine, and he instituted a new practice for believers to follow. In so doing, he challenged them, and then, by extension, us, to remember him. Do this in remembrance of me. So, similar to baptism, Jesus instituted this ordinance for us. Now, this is further solidified. We're still looking at the scriptural underpinnings. Paul picks up these very words as he writes to the New Testament church in Corinthians. We looked at that. Steve read it for us. This is after Pentecost. Paul then instructs the church there. And you can look at it if you want. I'm not going to read it again. But Paul says he received the instruction from the Lord about communion. And he passes it on to the church. That's what he says in that scripture in 1 Corinthians 11. And then he says, we, as we partake of the bread, as we partake of the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, there are other scriptures speaking to this and about this, but this gives us a firm underpinning, scriptural underpinning for what we do in communion. Well, the scripture men- mentions remembering, proclaiming, and some other things. Let's synthesize that a little bit. What is the Lord's Supper or communion? What happens and what does it mean? I don't, <clears throat> I don't want to bore you, but I want to look a little bit at some history and some progression of communion. About the time of the Reformation, which was about 500 years ago, brave theologians took huge steps away from the Roman Catholic Church, which was essentially the only church, only recognized church. And so we end up now in a very different place than what they saw in the first 1500 years of Christianity, for the most part. So we start then with the, some historical views. First of all, the Roman Catholic position, which is similar today, is called transubstantiation. Basically what happens in their, in their belief when you come to the elements of communion, and it's done very differently in their mass, but a change of substance occurs. The elements are literally turned into the body and the blood of Jesus. Your senses may not recognize it, which is probably a good thing, but they believe that it actually turns into the body and the blood. The idea is to partake in Christ even as he is being sacrificed in the Mass. Now, we see some problems with this. I don't think I'm going to take time to look into those problems, but you should look into those, um, at least from our perspective, right? Well, we go to another viewpoint, and this brings us to the Reformation, uh, Martin Luther being the, the father of the Reformation, if you will, as the primary reformer, he moved away from that belief somewhat in his understanding of what happened at the Lord's Supper. His, his viewpoint would be called consubstantiation. And in this case, the elements don't actually turn into the body and the blood, but 
It's said that his presence, that is Christ's presence, is in, it's around, it's under, it's with the elements as one partakes. And even in this case, partaking in communion, <clears throat> in those elements, the participant experiences something because he's partaken. Because of that act of partaking in communion, he can experience forgiveness of sins, he can experience confirming faith because of that sort of power that's supplied by the, the elements. And we still don't think that's quite proper. There's one more reformer here, um, and his name is John Calvin, similar time frame as Luther, and he, um, it's, it's still practiced by the Reformed tradition, that's why I have Reformed here, um, but you still see in, in their understanding a special spiritual presence emphasized in those elements, some kind of, of grace that's imparted to the partaker just by ingesting a little bit of bread and a little bit of juice. I still have a bit of a problem with that, and that brings us to our final viewpoint. I'm kind of run, running through these. There's a lot more to it, but I don't, want to, I don't want to bore anybody. The final viewpoint here we can call the memorial view, and this also springs from the Reformation or very close to that time of Luther. A guy by the name of Zwingli. If you're tired of your last name, you can change it to that. Um, a Swiss reformer. And his followers, the Anabaptists, maybe you've heard of them, they believe that the Lord is no more present in the cup and the bread than he is anywhere else. The elements, then, are representational. Participants, if you ingest the bread and the wine as a believer, you demonstrate faith as you remember. It's in remembrance. You could say it's commemorative. And I think we basically follow this tradition in our statement of belief in our practice here at Bridgeport. The elements are representational. The practice that we engage in is memorial. As a knight, you regularly practice. You regularly train. This is to remember. It's to be reminded and to proclaim what you are. If you don't practice and train as a knight, think about it. If you went 10 years without practicing or training, you'll forget who you are. You'll forget what you can do and what you should do. And you might need that against the enemy at any given moment. So regular training, jousting, practicing, whatever it is, it keeps you in shape. It keeps you fit for what you are. So we remember what has been done on our behalf with two representational elements. Now maybe you've been tempted to be like this little boy that after a communion or after communion in a church service somewhere, the little boy says very loudly, Mom, can we have bread and juice for dinner tonight? I love that stuff. I mean, some of you have been tempted to say that, right? I mean, it, it tastes good when your stomach's empty. But obviously, that's not why we're doing it. We're doing it because it represents who we are by way of remembering. So the two elements, you have the bread. The bread represents 
Jesus' body, of course. Jesus was a healthy individual. He was an acceptable sacrifice, if you will. And his body went from very healthy to broken, to beaten, to abused as a sin-bearing sacrifice for you and for me. First Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, He himself bore our sins in his, in his body on the tree, so that having died to sin, we might live for righteousness. Similarly, the cup, the wine, the juice, that represents Jesus' blood. In Hebrew thought, there's an expression, the life is in the blood. Well, Jesus' life was given. His blood was given in order that we might have life. His blood was shed. He died, giving opportunity for forgiveness. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. There are five things that we'll cover briefly that we are doing when we take communion. We've touched on most of them already, but let's make them clear. Five things that we are doing when we take communion. First of all, it's a reminder. We're restating the basics. It's a reminder of the gospel and its claim on our lives, who we are in Christ. He now defines us. And it's a memorial. We're being reminded of him and honoring him in such. The knight reminds in his training of his commitment to his knighthood. A certain lifestyle, a certain path that he has chosen, he is reminded of that, of its dangers, of its rewards, of all of it as he trains. I think secondly, we are stirred up in faith. We have assurance as we partake. We remember who we are. We're stirred up and our eyes look to Christ. He's, he's coming again. We remember that. Sometimes there's conviction that's brought on our hearts as we focus on the Lord during a time of partaking. Other times encouragement, maybe both. Well, the knight is stirred up to live his life properly as he trains, as he exercises, and as he practices. The third one, we have fellowship together. We commune. There's the word, communion. We commune with each other. It's a special fellowship. This is something we do together. It's bonding. The night when he goes out with his friends and his comrades in practice and training, even battle, they're bonded together. They do this together. 1 Corinthians ten seventeen says, We who are many are one body since all of us share in the one bread. It brings us together. It's also a time of, it's an opportunity for special fellowship. And I don't think it's a magical thing, but it's a special communion with the Lord. It memorializes, it remembers, it points back to what He has done and who we can be in Him. 1 Corinthians ten sixteen: the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not sharing in the body of Christ? And the last one, number five, it's a proclamation of the death while we wait His coming. 
1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often, Paul says here, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, I think this involves some looking back on our historical event of our own faith. It involves looking back to Christ's action and proclaiming that. And then it involves looking forward by faith in anticipation of what's ahead. Proclaiming Christ until he comes. An act of obedience, proclaiming his reality. So there's these two, these two ordinances of the Christian church. Just by way of review, we looked at baptism and it's in your announcer, but we have, Lord willing, a baptism service coming up. We saw that there's scriptural underpinnings and commands and there's examples in the New Testament for water baptism. We need to partake in water baptism. Water baptism is symbolic. It represents the work of God that's already been done within us as he has graciously saves, saved us as we believed. It's a public testimony proclaiming who we are in Christ. By the way, we should do this unashamedly. Proclaim who we are. It's a celebration. We stand with each other in celebrating the life of a brother or a sister. As a new knight, you ride out in your armor for the first time. It symbolizes everything of who you are. It gives testimony. It publicly acknowledges what your life is about, what you've chosen. You ride out with the brotherhood in celebration as a new knight. And you stand together in solidarity in the Christian family. The second ordinance, that of communion. We also have scripture, scriptural underpinnings. We saw those. We looked at the commands from Jesus as well as the New Testament church. We participate in communion as a memorial. The elements in this case represent what Christ has done for us. They stand as representational. And as we do this, we remember, we are stirred up in faith, we proclaim Christ, and we commune. We fellowship with each other as well as with Christ. We look back and we look forward. And we should praise God. We should praise God. A knight regularly trains and practices. A knight participates in the reminders of who he is. And what he is about, this stirs him up to be a good knight, to be a true knight. So take these ordinances from the scripture with all seriousness and we practice them together. Think about being that knight. We want to be the kind of knight that we should be, that we were designed to be. And in so doing, we can look to these ordinances as part of that. Corbin, would you come up and bring us a song? Let's pray together as he comes. Father, thank you that um, we have these, these two special practices. It's interesting in a way that
you have given these for us, but we trust that they are for a purpose. As we engage in baptism, that outward sign of what you have done, we trust that it blesses us in the way you've designed it for. As we practice communion, as we take the elements together, we know that you have given that to us in order to stir us up, in order to build our faith. Thank you for these two ordinances. Help us to understand them well, to take them seriously, and to practice them well here at Bridgeport. God, we love you, and we pray in Jesus' name.